Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council. Just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Hello and welcome to episode 155 of the Washed Up Emo Podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today, we welcome Chris Creechy from the Apple Seed Cast. Chris has been on my list for the entire eight years of this podcast existence, and I'm honored to finally have him on the podcast. I love Chris's appreciation for the scene, constantly challenging himself, and not resting while making the band work alongside his day job, family, and life. The band's discography is one of my favorites in all of music, and to finally hear some of the questions I've had over the years was a true treat. Last note, there's a new album by the band entitled The Fleeting Light of Impermanence out on Graveface Records that we discuss, and you can start listening to this on Friday. Or if you're listening to this in the future, it's on your favorite streaming service. Chris was honest, sweet, and thoughtful throughout this beautiful conversation, and I hope you enjoy. Thank you to all the Patreon supporters out there. You make this life of a podcast a lot easier. If you want support, head on over to patreon.com slash washedupemo. This is episode 155 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Chris Creechy from the Appleseed Cast. That is what keeps the project going. So it, once once I'm not selling anything, it's pretty much becomes just a uh, a recording project and never again a touring one. A lot of times, you know, there's this whole reunion thing and bands come back and they do a tour and they go back and they go back to their thing and then they maybe five years later, you guys, you have been doing this this entire time. And so the longevity of you saying like, you know, if you keep buying stuff, well, people have for a long time. <laughs> yeah, and and to be honest, I I have you saying that uh, uh, makes me uh, kind of realize like what an idiot I am for having kept doing it. Like, of course, we could just do reunion tours. <laughs> 
you like like figure out the ten year and then go out and right. practice for it right. and then come back and was that? But again, I, I I don't know. Like, is that does that need to be as calculated? Like, does that take away the feeling? I never have even thought about doing. Well, obviously, uh, have, have never thought about doing a reunion tour. Um, so, but I guess if I was, you know, just working at home and, you know, doing nothing else, I, I guess who crossed my mind. But do you have it? You've um, been doing it this whole time. And I think what's, what right, that, yeah. what's that been feel, what's that felt like? Obviously there's, you're not doing it all the time. You have a family, you have you know, work stuff yeah. you've got. So yeah. when it is, it's almost like it is part of your DNA at this point, the way this is going. The way I think about it is, uh, I work on a record. Um, I'm very simplistic. <laughs> I work on a record and then I go on tour. Um, so I'm, I'm not thinking about it in terms of like, oh, we're together now and then we're not together and then we're together again. This time we're, on the road or whatever. Yeah. For me, it's pretty simple. I like, I like to write music and I do enjoy touring. And when those things happen, they happen. Started in Southern California, correct. And then the, the move to Kansas. Was that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up in San Diego in my early twenties. I moved up to Los Angeles to, um, you know, uh, stars in my eyes to, do music. I was, um, uh, I was naive. I, I'm still naive, I think, but, uh, I was more so then. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I thought that's where you went to do music. And then, um, through meeting bands like still life and other bands that were kind of connected in the scene up there, um, which is hilarious coming from San Diego. <laughs> so it took me, you know, uh, moving to LA to get connected into a scene. But, you know, I was aware of the bands of San Diego. I just was not kind of in that clique, you know. Um, what other bands? God, like No Knife and um, Guy Like Jehu and, and uh, I mean, even Rock from the Crypt. They're, they're all, even though they are a little different, you know. Um, uh, I, one of the guys, one of the guys I went to high school with um, was um, you know, we weren't best friends or anything, but he was like one of four guitar players in the jazz ensemble we were all in. And uh amazing guitar player, uh, uh, Toby from Three Mile Pilot. From, oh, wow. Uh, um, Black Heart Procession. Um, and, but see, he, that thing happened years after, like, I really didn't talk. We had mutual friends that were really good friends. Uh, and, and, you know, we got along great, but we never really, we would never hang out together. That's the kind of friend he was. But after high school, you know, I just, you know, he wasn't one of the guys that I would call up and hang out with. So we lost touch. And uh, through our pilot and black car procession, those happened like right after high school. And so, and, uh, do you remember this band called uh, Julia? Yes, of course. Uh, Chad was a good friend of mine. Um, I think Chad is the first person that ever uh, mentioned the word emo to me. And he, he mentioned that his new band was an, was an emo band and whatever. And, um, what year was that? 
Oh God. Um, that would have been 95. Shoot. I want to say earlier than that, but that's, that's probably right. 94, 95, something like that. Um, and that was in San Diego or Los Angeles that you, that was, that was in San Diego. That was like the last year, maybe or one of the last years that I lived in San Diego. I lived in LA for three years. And I left LA in 98. Uh, when I moved to actually probably 97, because we were a band, I think we started in 96. And in 97, we uh, hit the road, did about a, a nine month straight tour. Um, I moved to Chicago for a few months and then tried to move to San Diego again, found that it was way too expensive. Oh, damn. Yeah. And, um, I had at that time kind of determined that I wasn't wanting to live in LA anymore and there's nothing against LA. I actually have a great time every time I go there, but, um, there's just too much hassle and it's, and kind of from touring, um, seeing a different side uh, of the country, namely um, smaller towns, um, that was much more attractive to me. And so when I couldn't move back to San Diego, I talked to the, the guys in the band. One of the guys, uh, Jason, was from Lawrence and suggested, well, we looked at a few different cities, but Lawrence won out. I think we had made so many friends in Lawrence and the fact that Jason was from there was huge. And uh, so, yeah, so then we moved to Lawrence. That's rad. I I want to, that's, I think I love like the progression of like you, you know, being like, all right, I don't like this. I'm going to try something else. Cause some people just stay. Some people don't think that there's anything else or they just, and I think from your touring, you probably saw, yeah, there's other ways to do this. Um, that's really interesting. I want to mention that when Chad mentioned emo to you, was it, what the fuck is that? Or um, like what, again, people listening are like, Oh cool. You just went on the internet and like looked it up. Like, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, we were probably just talking about bands, you know, at that time I was really into, uh, Fugazi, obviously, and and uh, a lot of the the normal bands that a lot of kids our age, my age, whatever, were into at that time. I heard his band. I, I liked his band a lot. I think it was when I was talking. I, I was telling him that I was moving to L.A. Yeah, I can't I can't remember exactly the the you know the exact line of conversation, but um, he was telling me to get involved in a scene <laughs> and that. Like his band, you know, uh, his band was emo and, um, that the emo, this emo scene is awesome. And that he thought that my music would, you know, um, that basically I should, basically I should find the scene in LA. <laughs> you know, that's actually really yeah. good advice. Yeah. Yeah. He was kind of, he was kind of, uh, basically he was saying like, you like this kind of music, you're probably doing something stupid by moving to LA, but when you go up there, find bands like you find bands that are in the scene and that's how you're going to make anything happen. And he was totally right about that because, you know, we weren't going to uh, go up there and get, you know, a, uh, a deal with Capitol records or whatever I thought 
was the way you did it. <laughs> yeah. What bands yeah. did you did you start hanging out with? You mentioned a couple, but what were some of the ones in well, LA? Still Life. Still Life for sure. Uh, well, so it was through a lot of like little shows. I'm trying to think of the like, the, like Black uh, Raven. I can't remember the, the names, but um, did you play up in Goleta? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. Strat- Stratagem Records is up there. Dylan, uh, who ran Pickle Patch, uh, his band was definitely one. Um, shoot, yeah, there was a bunch. There was a bunch of bands, uh, kind of just, uh, and none of them were, you know, really that big. Um, and but I would say, but that thank you because uh, Dylan was was huge in getting kind of plugged in the scene, and Dylan ran a. Um, a, a small record label called Stratagem Ripcords, and he put out his band Stratego on it. And to be honest, I don't know <laughs> if he put out any other bands on it. But he also ran a um, a show space out of his apartment in Galia called the Pickle Patch. And very early on, um, we ended up playing. Uh, shows with Braid and Raina Maria and like I think our first show was might have been Braid and Raina Maria or maybe it was Chick 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 and Raina Maria but we got all these amazing shows yeah a, a lot of the bands um, I'm trying to remember names but they, they were much more on the hardcore side of things um, and we kind of were you know, just straight up emo at that point. Um, and so we kind of fit the bill for a lot of, a lot of stuff in like 96 and, um, it was 96, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that came through the LA and, um, uh, you know, Santa Barbara area. But it's cool that you kind of mentioned that because it's like, some of the similarities from that time and what this podcast really kind of explores is that really kind of special moment because you're playing with hardcore bands, the guys running like maybe puts out one vinyl record and, or one, one, one seven inch, he's got a show space. And then, you know, a band like braid or Raina Maria comes through and you're opening. And then there's that connection made, but at the same time, it wasn't like we had the internet to really at that point to connect in such a way. And I loved that moment because it, it was, um, you, you, there was a, there, there's effort now, but there was that effort then of the physical connection, the physical record, the, the touring together. And I think those deeper connections, especially at that time for this era and scene, I think is part of the reason why it's still something today. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, when I think about the scene then, it was an actual thing. I'm a you know a 47 year old dad now that <laughs> I don't really I don't re- I'm not connected. At, you know, I still um, talk to a lot of bands. I love finding new music. The scene today doesn't exist the way it did then. Whether that's a product of me being disconnected, which it probably is, <laughs> or um, it's just, it's a different thing now. Even, I mean, even when uh, we moved to Lawrence, which was very early on, we were, we were a band for about six months in LA uh, before we left. Uh, remember Coos? Did you ever go to Coos? I totally know Coos, yeah. I remember going to a show there with uh, 
jejun mineral and knapsack. And I don't know if I mean, it's been a while. I don't know if it was a uh, if I'm blending different dates together. It was two of those three, and I've seen all three of them there. But Gabe from Mineral, he's the first person that. Uh, he's not the first person. No, he's he did something very kind. He wrote out a whole list, his whole uh, itinerary with all the with all the, the the venues because we were talking to him about yeah we're going on a tour. Um, you know, do you have any advice for us? And he's like, yeah, look up these people. And so he he uh, kind of introduced us to the 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 scene, the national kind of scene, or whatever. And you know, I was at the time just so appreciative that he that he took the time to to write it out. And there was that kind of of, of a I don't know if camaraderie is the right word. It's taking care of each other. I mean, it still it does, it still happens, but. Maybe is because I was benefiting from that so much that I remember it so much more. Whatever. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a beautiful memory. I, I can see Gabe doing that. I can literally see him oh, totally. pulling it out of his you know pocket, and it's all folded and yep. you know like trying to show you. And but that's the yeah. you know I think that you mentioning a lot of those bands. You know these are uh, connectors. You know, Raina Maria had a venue in Ma- in Wisconsin. Braid obviously had a huge. They were touring, I think, more than nonstop. <laughs> and Bob wrote it all down. Uh, J. June, you know, was out there. Knapsack, of course. Mineral was, you know, kind of doing those things. I think those 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 first folks. And you're right, passing it down, taking care of each other um, was a really special thing. And it was, you know, again, you, you had to hang at the show. You couldn't read it on a message board um, and start right. or doing it. <laughs> um, even that seemed advanced. Um, did it, did, when you were talking to everybody, did anyone talk or feel like, this is crazy, like more people are showing up or no one's showing up? What the hell are we doing? Um, I mean, there was a feeling at, at the shows that things were happening. I remember, you know, you'd, you'd see a band somewhere and, <clears throat> and then the next thing you, you know, everyone at the show is talking about, oh yeah, but you gotta go see out to the drive-in. They are so amazing. And, or whoever it was, you know, uh, Braid was like that, you know, Braid went to, Braid went to England really early on or Europe, whatever. And, but, uh, I don't think. England never got over that. Like every time we went to Europe, a braid is like worshipped. Um, um, at least for a time. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, some shows have such a huge impact on on the local scene, and um, I don't know. It was always fun to hear. I guess uh, what was going on. I you know what people were interested in, and what 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 uh, was kind of sparking a fire. You know. Yeah, and then like you, you, you can't miss it. You know, they're coming down. They're coming through next week. Um, right. Here's the flyer. You can't miss it. Right. It's it's packed. People are going nuts. People just went nuts anyway. I mean, I, I think that's I think that's just a product of the whole thing coming from hardcore scene and having so much crossover with with the hardcore scene at the time that um, people just knew knew how to go nuts at a song. A song. <laughs> Today, you know. It, emo or whatever post rock or whatever genre that have kind of sprung from hardcore. It's, I feel like there's maybe not, there's not as much crossover. Um, but I am, I'm probably wrong, but (laughs) I think there is crossover, but I think there's also a crossover of picking up your phone every four minutes. 
Um, oh and, God, yes. And yeah. I'm yeah. I'm guilty of it too. You and I were watching Cursive together, and we were both yeah. on our phones. <laughs> <laughs> But I had to check Instagram. <laughs> maybe maybe Tom texted me a cool joke. I don't know. Maybe check it out. No, just kidding. <laughs> or I'm let's always waiting for that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's blow yeah. this pop stand. I, I, I wonder if Tom saw my last my last text to him. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. Uh, yeah. Oh, we're so guilty. Um, or, or just or just lean over and, and say, "Hey, Tom, I've got." Really clever text. I just said, you might want to read that. (laughs) Everybody, if you want to know, that actually happened. (laughs) We're not making this up. All of that just happened. Uh, I thought, too, that what are some of those influences from your sound or maybe kind of, I hate the word influence, more of like what kind of was your apex? Because long songs, long intros, soundscapes, uh, getting lost, um, euphoria—those are the words that come to me when I first heard uh, Appleseed Cast. And there are those. What are some things that came to you uh, that become to? Because again, when I first heard, I was like, bands weren't doing that that I that I could right. know of. So that was new for me. Well, well, there's a few different things happening there. Um, first starting with um what i would call true influences like the the there's things you like and then there are things that formed you and um two of the bands that formed me are the cure and pink floyd um as square as pink floyd is uh i loved their long instrumental parts and the whole idea of doing longish instrumental parts and then coming in and singing. That's a direct uh, uh, cue from, from Pink Floyd. I love that. Yeah. Uh, like shining on your crazy diamond. Got this huge long intro. And then he comes in. Uh, also, who did that is The Cure. The, uh, the Cure has many songs that uh, start off with, uh, with a long intro. Also, Sonic Youth was a huge one for me more for the journey guitars and the, you know, those types of arrangements, you know? So then how that played into what we did. Well, I mean, I guess we did have a tiny bit of that on our first record, even though end of the ring wars is, is much more straight ahead emo. I think the first uh, song Marigold and patchwork definitely has pieces of that. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's those there's parts where it's just kind of like long feedbacky parts, and then later on we have the genius idea of throwing a saxophone on top of it, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, there's so much to laugh at that. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you can't beat it up too much. No, no, I, you know, I I do think it's got some really good parts and 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 songs. Um, but there really is so much to laugh at on it, and and it, it's cute. I, I it it shows you how naive I was. Uh, not not claiming to be any less now, but um, anyway. I, I mean, would you agree, or do you do you think I'm 
I think you're I think you're beating yourself up too much. I think end of the ring wars. I bet there's some nerd just like me that probably comes up to you and asks you for like, hey man, can you play Untitled Half? You know, and it's you're like, dude, that was fucking 21 years ago, man. I'm out. <laughs> uh, yeah, there are a lot of people, and and I said, I mean, it's been a while since I listened to it. I mean, I think the last time I listened to it, it was playing in a burrito place in Texas. And I, I liked it. Like, I was like, who is this? It was pretty good. <laughs> no shit. You didn't recognize it? it? No. No. It was like this long, like, it was like one of the long feedbacky parts. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, dude, this, this band really knows what they're doing. I'm kidding. I'm That's, joking. That sounds like an SNL skit. <laughs> and then I heard my voice. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> Get off your high horse, I'm Chris. Ju- I guess I'm genetically programmed to like this, um, <laughs> my own stuff. Yeah, anyone listening is now understanding, like, what an idiot I am. <laughs> but I think, you know, the... the uh, I'm pic- sure they understood that earlier. But. Yeah, way earlier. Once they hit play, yeah. they're like, bring it. <laughs> bring me the stupidity. Yeah, it, basically anyone that decided to play this already knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh <laughs> I think to the that time, you know. But, Hi, mom and dad. By Hi, the mom way, and dad. <laughs> that's all that's listening. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> it's great to see you. Um, yeah. Well, well I'll, I'll I'll see you Thanksgiving. I'll bring the tofurkey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the label itself. I think I want to go through. Uh, I want to go through the records because there's songs that I want to mention. Um, but I think yeah. it's worth mentioning. You know the the being on that volume two of the emo diaries. Um, mm-hmm. you know, was a catalyst. Do you think both good and bad? I think that label was going to be attached to us no matter what. That's, that's what we were doing. I mean, it, it was, it, to me now, it seems so blatant, you know, and uh, I mean, that touches on the last thing we're talking about as well. Like, where did that come from? Obviously it came from, where did the kind of longer instrumental and those things come from? Obviously it came from, those early bands that I liked when I was learning how to play guitar and that, but it also came from reviews of the first record. The, the reviews were basically went like this. We think they did this really well, but it's really derivative. Wow. And starting at that point, my kind of one of the directions that I decided was I don't want to be derivative. I, I, it was a good kick in the pants to be honest, to, to kind of like make sure that I'm, at least trying to be as creative as possible and not relying on a, uh, a sound that is kind of already there. And so that's been, that's been my, not mission, but my direction from that point on. Um, and one of those things was kind of incorporating the soundscapey ambient type ideas into what we were doing and also avoiding um a lot of distortion and and trying to do more with clean guitars and all that stuff so anyway sorry to backtrack but no that's it's funny i was looking through my notes and it sort of it led back to that because i wanted to talk about some of those first reviews like being able to say that you're just a mineral sunny day real estate copycat and what does that do to you? And for you to not take it negatively, or you probably, probably you mentioned it, so you're probably still thinking about it, but it's, you said it was a kick in the pants. And I kind of like that where it was like, yeah. okay, this is, 
you know, I'm learning this thing. I'm figuring this out. Let me try to go here. And now I think it, it led, it led you in the right place. Like what if it was, I, 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 we, like there was some records later that you guys got, you know, like for low level, like a 9.0 from pitchfork. What if that happened for the first record? You know, what would have happened? So I, again, that's all revisionist history, but I still think it's cool to think about that. It led you there versus kind of getting that huge praise early on or that, you know, we get this dopamine now, even a text message is a dopamine. And I think early on you didn't get dopamine. You got a kick in the ass. Yeah. Yeah. And it it was, it was, uh, I mean, the critics aren't wrong almost always, you know, they, uh, you may not like what they say, but their, their kind of role is to be dispassionate. And I don't always agree with every critic, but if you take 10 of them and, you know, 10 of them are saying that uh, it's derivative, <laughs> then, hey, guess what? It's, it's probably derivative. But, you know, th- that said, we got a lot of praise on that album too. And it was kind of a mixed bag of like, we think they're doing this really well. I think they're pretty much like, I think they have potential, but what was success back then for you? I mean, I was doing it like the success was playing to 12 people and them having a great time. It was making a hundred bucks out of show so that you could get gas and some food and make it to the next town. I didn't, you know, I think once I realized that, or, you know, my idea of like what success would be later was if I had a few albums out, years later, people were still buying them type of a thing. That would have been a success, you know. Uh, I think once I realized how the scene worked and and, and how, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is once I, once I kind of bought into the scene, then that was its own success like just being part of that community making friends being able to see the country being able to see the, the world you know uh, just being blown away i blown away that anyone would come out to a show to listen to the band you know um b- being blown away that you know this is our first time in north carolina or wherever it is never having been there and bigger and bigger audiences come out to see you and that was it. I mean, there's, there's never been any kind of expectation of how big, cause it didn't, it doesn't matter. And that remains to today. Like I'm, I'm so happy uh, with what we've done and, and where we're at. And uh, it's awesome. I love being able to go out. I love being able to record and write new songs. And especially at my age now, and <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. There's something about your first shows and you're seeing those bands and that same feeling is probably coming out. The same scene that was back then still comes out. And the shows are not as big, like let's say 2005 or whatever it was, whatever when we put out, um, I'd say Peregrine or Two Conversations, around that time is when we kind of had our heyday, you know? Oh, three, oh, four, oh, five, yeah. Yeah. That's when like we were playing to legitimately large crowds. The people that come out to the shows now are people that were with us from then or, or earlier. You know, um, I meet people all the time that uh, remember us from like, God, what was that uh, Christian festival? Like Cornerstone. Uh, Cornerstone. I meet people all the time 
that were at that show. Wow. Um, yeah, it's insane. Uh, so it's crazy. It is. It's really crazy and fun. It's fun. Like, uh, like last night, last night I saw, saw a couple guys, uh, there last night that, um, I mean, I've probably seen these guys like 20 times, you know, just every time we come to Orlando or, or wherever it is, we talk and laugh and, and, uh, it's just fun. <laughs> What's first when you write a song? Is it the lyrics? Is it the riff? Is it, is it the drum line, drum beat? It, it, it could be any of those. I would love to write more starting with lyrics, but that's probably the least likely of if for any one song. I'm trying to think of any song that actually has made it that I started with lyrics. And that's the thing with them. It's like, uh, I've written tons of lyrics that have never made it to a song, you know, um, and it's really something that it seems like it shouldn't be that hard to do. It's just a matter of applying myself to doing that because it produce a better song. I think, you know, having a really good lyrics is a huge part of having a good song. Predominantly it starts with the guitar, a guitar riff or guitar progression. And I do often sing vocal lines to the progression or riff or whatever. And, um, if I, if I come up with a vocal line that I really like, um, then that has a high likelihood of being developed, you know, into a song. I'd say with the old Kane stuff, that's definitely how those songs come about. But other than that, a lot of times it'll be, you know, um, guitar with a, with a drum line. I, I love writing drums. Really? Oh yeah, Absolutely. I write like a lot of drum lines. I suck at drums. I wish I could write drums. Oh, oh well, I just write them on a keyboard. <laughs> That's what I mean. I suck at that. <laughs> oh, you suck at drum composition. As like yes, a... yes. Oh. Oh, man. I used to drive my dad crazy. Really? Just doing, yeah, just to make mouth drums. You know, more than more than a dozen times, he would we'd be driving. He'd be like, "Chris, stop that!" Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd have like the bass line. I'd be humming the bass line while I'm doing the drum part. You know, um, hilarious. My boy does that kind of a little bit. Uh, it's funny. And now you're um, encouraging it. And it, but now I'm like, after a while, I I totally sympathize with my dad. Like. Yeah, that's annoying. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Do you, did you call him the first time and you're like, hey, remember when I used to annoy the crap out of you? you I, I, no, I haven't. <laughs> I think you need to do that after this call. Yeah, I should. Yeah. <laughs> Being the, the person in the band that's been the constant and having writing the lines or you know working with other people, I think it's one, probably a pressure to be that person in the band, but also to have different folks to write with or work with is it is sometimes brings different things to songs or the records, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, if I, uh, if I write a drum part that is expressed on the record, the idea is expressed on the record, but you know, without a doubt, everyone's going to make that idea better. Man, with with drums, I'm I'm probably much more hands-on with drums than any other instrument, other than my own parts. You know, 
um, just because of, to me, Apple Seacast is, is, is very much a drum band. Like, um, I like interesting, interesting drum parts and I try to write or encourage or, uh, bring out, um, in one way or another drum parts that I think are interesting. You know? There's a lot of, there's a lot of interest in the drums for me is <laughs> what I'm saying. I mean, I've been very fortunate with the drummers that I've worked with. Um, every single one of them has been awesome. Nick, uh, who's in the band now is, is amazing. He's just so easy to work with and such a good drummer. And he, he actively wants to know my opinion. And, and when I demo drums, he's, he's, usually like man all of that part so it, he's very easy to work with and how many unfinished songs do you have well that's funny not many most of the time i will write 10 songs and the band will jam out and explore another five ideas or whatever and then 12 to 14 of those make it so we'll have like one or two actually developed songs that are laying around after the fact, you know, um, is that last record is much different because I, I, I searched for a long time what I wanted to do. And during that process, I was demoing ideas the entire time. And I have like 70 some, um, pro tool sessions of songs, um, that they all probably have like a good part to them, but, None of them, or at least, no, that's not true. Um, relatively few of them are developed into like a song structure type of thing. There's a lot of half songs. There's a lot of really good parts that could, you know, potentially become songs, but of actual completed songs, very few. I mean, I at this point, I can't think of any other than, you know, stuff I have from this last record there's probably there's probably 10 to 15 of those that are you know ready to be paid attention to and could could become you know songs <laughs> that's cool yeah so you're sort of letting it all out there it's not like there's stuff that's there's there, most of it's out there yeah yeah i mean and like I said, up until now, all of it has been out there. Like a lot of times, if you do like a, a licensed album, um, so the, the record company puts out an album and then someone else wants to license it, uh, like in Japan or in Europe or whatever, and they always want another song. And we've always had difficulty trying to find anything else uh, that we could throw on it because uh, we basically recorded everything that we everything that we wanted to be put out, you know? Um, so a lot of those, uh, not, I mean, it's only happened a few times, but those songs that are added to those, um, licensed releases are often just, um, derived from an idea and just recorded at home and, <laughs> um, thrown on there. Have you ever thought about doing an entire instrumental record? I have. I am contemplating doing that uh, for the next record, to be honest. Look at that. Um, Guys, yeah. look at this, huh? Look at it. I do a podcast for eight years, and I can tell the future. Every time I do vocals, every time I record vocals, um, 
every time I'm about to sing, I think, man, it'd be so great to do an instrumental record. <laughs> Wait, uh, every time you open up your mouth to sing, you think that? Pretty much. I love or that. Like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> how wonderful How wonderful would it be to like do an instrumental anything? You know, just uh, I look over at Sean or, or the other guys in the band and think, man, it must be great to just not have to sing. <laughs> <laughs> Only because it scares me shitless. Do you have your catalog as instrumentals? Like, do you have the tapes and everything to be able to... I just thought that would be an interesting thing to do for, like, put an instrumental version of certain songs out. Yeah, I mean, um, I have... Let's see. <clears throat> it's crazy how it ended up with me, but I have... Um, Half of the tapes for Lola Valal. I have the, the tapes for uh, Mary Vitalis. I do have the Peregrine, Peregrine um, not the tapes, because I think we taped over on that one. But I do have the the, the tracks in on Pro Tools for Peregrine. I do not know where anything Two Conversations is, um, assuming John still has those. Um, but he, I mean, he also had the, the level stuff and Mary Callis and that ended, ended up, uh, at my house, um, just by coincidence. Um, end of the ring wars. Uh, yeah, I have those as well on ADAT, <laughs> uh, which is amazing. You've got some on pro tools. You've got some on two inch tape. You've got some on ADAT and there's certain people that are listening that they're going, okay, I know pro tools. What's ADAT. And there's probably like, you need to find a player. You need to find a can. So it's interesting that you yeah. think that you've back then you're like, cool, this is the thing, you know, this is the friendster <laughs> the era. Right. And then years later, there's nothing to play it. There's nothing to be able to access it. Being able to yeah. keep your music going. Uh, it's like, you have to constantly keep it up. Yeah. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that one of the hard drives, I think the Paragon hard drive, I would need to get it recovered somehow because I don't think that hard drive is working. So I think as a lesson to people listening, like back up your stuff, the cloud, bunch of drives, uh, servers, however yeah. you guys do it. Yeah. Like just because, you know, again, we're think we're here talking about trying to put together instrumental stuff and you're going to be like, well, I don't have that. I don't have that. I have this, I have this. And you know, for, for you, yes, the audio is out there. Yes, the music is being listened to. But if we want to do something to it, there's some challenges. Yeah, I haven't listened. To, I haven't put the any of the reels on a two-inch tape machine to listen to the quality of what I do have. So it's, I mean, it's possible that it's uh, degraded quite a bit. I don't know. Is there plans to maybe record some live video and some more kind of stuff? Because I think, again, watching watching some of how these songs are, are, are performed um, is something of interest. Have you guys thought about that? Uh, yes. And, and I mean, we've experimented with putting cameras on stage and whatever. A lot of, a lot of what gets done with our band is uh, dictated by how much funds we have to do anything, which is always usually around zero. I would love to be able to, you know, get some people to do like a three camera shoot, you know, for a tour um, and just have a ton of live footage. That'd be amazing. You know, I did a experiment once with old canes. We played a, 
a show in, I think it's Akron. Um, and three of us handed our phones over to audience members and just asked them if they, you know, who'd, who'd want to shoot a song. And, uh, man, it came out so good. I mean, the, the video quality itself sucked having, you know, three just independent people moving the, moving the cameras around as they saw the interest in the song happening, gave plenty to work with and all the cuts looked cool. And What's it like playing in a band with, with such a deep catalog? I mean, having, you know, eight or nine, 10 records kind of thing worth of music. Is it, is it something that, um, difficult? You definitely kind of find what songs you like to play the most. Very rarely do you, in our case, very rarely do we have time to go back and relearn other songs off the record. So you end up playing a lot of the same songs. And then on breaks, you know, you'll, uh, you'll say, well, why don't we do this one or that one? And in each tour, you might have, you know, two to three uh, different songs that you add. But otherwise, there's also those songs that, like, you know, people always ask about. So for us, people are always going to ask for a fight song. They're always going to ask for Steps and Numbers, Hey Marionette. I don't even know what you would call them. Fan favorites. Yeah. Um, yeah. Bangers. Um, bangers. And, and, and <laughs> you know, we obviously want to play as many of those as possible just because people are paying money and, you know, I want to like respect that. And, and in, in our case, it, it might have to do with, you know, which iteration of the band itself is, is playing it. Cause True. I, there are, yeah, there, there are, um, songs we're playing now that, um, and, uh, that, that I like playing now much more than I did when, let's just say a different drummer was playing some drummers, are really good one thing and not so good the other and i get like for right now we're playing um innocent vision ordinary and loving it just because nick gets it and he gets you know how to play that one and i've played with other drummers that have kind of a, a too stiff to play that or whatever it is but yeah rooms and gardens is a very difficult one for me to play live just because i, I can never feel like and we don't play live very often because of this, but I, I feel like I can't deliver the vocals. You know, you deliver vocals uh, or you sing vocals in the studio. It's different than live, especially quieter stuff, quieter vocal deliveries. You can make that work in the studio. But for me, um, just the way I usually have my monitors and stuff, it's very hard for me to do like, any, any kind of like quiet vocal. It like challenges like the lower end of my voice. Like I have less control to hit the notes on the lower register. So I prefer singing the songs that have the, the, the louder, higher end of the register vocal parts. You'll notice like the whole new record. That's all. <laughs> it's all. I'm constantly just kind of pushing at the top edge of my vocal range because it's the easiest part of my vocal register to, to sing. And for some of those songs, like if, uh, you know, for maybe stuff off two conversations, like hanging marionette, like, have you thought about, because those are sometimes the, you know, popular songs. Have you thought about, um, you know, performing them in different ways because you've been doing them so many times, like thought about, I guess that maybe happens just because of the people that you're playing with, but have you thought about that? Like, is there a, is there a tendency to, to, to rework it or this is how the song is. This is how I'm going to play it. I thought about reworking them, not in like how, how to like reimagine 
um, but how to play them. And normally it's like, how could we do this more like a record? Because our records do have quite a bit of keys on them. And live, uh, up until this point, we have just kind of ignored those parts and maybe used delay and volume to compensate for any part that, that we're missing on the record, you know. But now that we have, you know, three of us on stage have, have keys, and actually Sean has actually started doing this on, um, maybe it's Hanging Marionette. He's, he's started, like, switching over. Oh, no, on Sense of Drama King. He's just kind of switched over and started doing those, those key parts, which I love. The keys part being able to sort of let the song live a little bit more, and you're right, not relying on the delay. <laughs> yeah, because we do a lot of that. A lot of relying on delay. A lot of delay. <laughs> <laughs> I just bought a delay pedal, so. <laughs> I, I love delay. I I absolutely love it. I have four on my, I think I have four on my pedal board. Let me think. One, two, three. I have three. You have three. I used to have four. Which ones? Which ones do you have? Um, I have the Meteor, however you say that one. I think it's French, by or Caroline Guitar Company. It's awesome. It's like a got like a lo-fi knob so that all your delays become distorted. I also have the reverb. Uh, actually, that's the Meteor. The kilobyte is the delay. I have, the kil- I have both pedals. And then I have an Earthquaker um, Avalanche Run, which is amazing. That's my locked-in delay. It's got a tap tempo on it. My Meteor is, or my kilobyte, is just for filling space. So it's, like a, it's got a, like a shorter delay, but it's really dirty sounding. And it just kind of fills in the entire decay of sound. And then I have my trusty old DL4, which is missing a button. So I use it now. I have two different settings to like what. Okay, so one is like an infinite delay where if I hit it and I play for two seconds, that whatever I just played is just going to keep on going. And I usually have it at a pretty lowish volume. So it's good for like turning on. And then when I I kick it off, it keeps on going until I hit a different setting. So I can make a loop or whatever, let it go, play over it. Uh, And then the other one is, it's not, it's definitely not infinite, but it does have like a super long decay. I'd say, oh, 10 seconds or something like that. So um, I can like hit it, make some noise, click it off. It's still going for another 10 seconds as I kind of move into something else or, or whatever. Anything I don't want to have to click off of, what I mean is anything that I don't want to have to click off at a specific time because I'm going to be doing something else, but I do want it to kind of overlap somewhat, that's what I use that for. I like that. That has me thinking about my pedal board that I'm looking at right now. I'm like, oh, if I have I tried that? Like, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so new record, f- The Fleeting Light of Impermanence. I chose that name just because it's so easy to say. <laughs> it's, a new, it's a new record. <laughs> I love that. So anything anything you want to mention or anything else that you have done on this one that you'd been wanting to do or process or anything like that? I guess, you know, we spent uh, last five years since Illumination Ritual kind of demoing stuff and kind of trying to figure out what you know, what I wanted to do as far as uh, a record, I, I kind of feel like at one point I looked back at what we had done so far, kind of felt like we had done so many 
uh, guitar bass drums records that I, that I was kind of, I was wanting to do something without guitar, like completely without guitar. That was early on in the writing process. And, and, uh, to make a long story short, I ended up, uh, realizing that not that, not that we couldn't do it, but that, that that's not really what I wanted. I think once I admitted that, or once I came to that realization, writing kind of accelerated. That's when I started making demos that I, I really liked, you know, brought those to the band and we, we developed those. And then we went to uh, the studio and um, we had like a week up at Flat Black Studio in Iowa where you, you can like live there. There's an apartment above the actual studio. And we spent a lot of time writing new stuff and, and working on the, 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 the demos came up with a lot of stuff we liked. And Again, taking time, getting through what maybe wasn't what you wanted and not knowing it until you hit that point, moving forward, finally liking what you're doing and then putting it out. That's better. That's better. Yeah. And that's almost like you're, you're learning still about yourself and writing and knowing to push through that and not rushing and not thinking, well, it's been two years. I got to put out another record. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my family is like, uh, how long does it take you to write a record? It's like 10 songs. Right. But yeah, I mean, I think there's going back to the beginning of this conversation. There's a, an overall driving force that I, I just don't want to, repeat what we've done. I don't want to be derivative, but whether I succeed at that or not, it's my attempt. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That I, I had a lot of, of figuring out what I wanted to do and, and I'm happy. I mean, I'm, I couldn't be happier with this record the way it came out. I think it, it sounds beautiful. I love it. And I loved, I loved the process of making it like every, every step of the way making it was just a, a great, a great time with the guys and, and Sean and Ben and Nick are not to diminish anyone else that's ever played in the band or with me and other projects, but they are so good at what they do. Apple Seacast is still going and there's still kids coming out that has to evoke emotion or feelings uh, aside from like a specific song or album, right? I feel gratitude. I, just like the, just like, what was it like to, um, to first play places you haven't been and people come out? It, it, there's a lot of gratitude. I'm happy that I am still doing it and I still love doing it. I know it's going to end at some point. I don't know when it'll end. Um, you know, right now, my family is like super supportive. You know, they, um, they love that I do this. Uh, my boy thinks it's so cool that I go out and, and play music and my wife is very understanding and and even though they both you know are missing me right now and I'm missing them they both want me to do it they want me to go out there and make music and uh, and I'm grateful to them for that you know um, or maybe they just don't like me being around I don't know but <laughs> maybe I hadn't thought about that actually no, no, totally cool. Yeah, go, go on the road again. You're fine. Oh, my God, Dad's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Finally, we can watch Bravo. Yeah. Oh, God. 
I have a box of cereal around the house. <laughs> Washed Up Emo fans, thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years, or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening, and for this current episode you're about to hear. I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shuttle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also reprinted volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com